0: Good morning, welcome to Westbridge Church. My name's Jeremiah, I'm one of the pastors here. And it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say uh, hello to those of you uh, that are watching on our online campus. Great to have you there. Uh, As well as our parent viewing rooms, that's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. And then uh, to those of you watching in our cafe area, great to have you hanging out there as well. Uh, We are uh, launched something last week, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, Last week we went to paperless notes, so that's on your dashboard. Uh, Some of you are like, there was almost a riot last week, so I understand. Uh, you're like, no paper notes. I need that. So if you need paper notes, there's a few printed uh, on either entrance into the auditorium. Uh, but some of you are like, yes, finally, I can just do it right on my phone. And uh, what's fascinating is, uh, you know, uh, we always told our kids like, you can't have your phone in church, and now we're like, everybody get your phone and bring it to church. So uh, we'd love for you to be on your phone all during the service. That'd be fantastic. And uh, there's a dashboard there. There's next steps. There's groups for you to participate in. Events. Uh, there's uh, next steps that you can take that's all tailored to you. And it's awesome because the more you use your dashboard, the more personalized it becomes to you. And uh, so we just encourage you, keep keep going back to that dashboard, keep looking for events and things that you can participate in. Uh, and, and then on top of the going paperless with notes, the other thing is we're going to be doing away with coffee on Sunday mornings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to see just what a riot we would get. So uh, we're going to keep the coffee, just no more paper notes. All right. <laughs> We are in week two of a series called uh, Famous Last Words. Last week we looked at, we're exploring, what what did Jesus say to his disciples at this Last Supper, this, uh, this final dinner that Jesus had the night before he was, uh, the night he was arrested and the night before he was crucified. And so this whole series over these several weeks is really taking place through one dinner. Uh, it's one dinner that Jesus has with his disciples and he's, and he's sharing with them the things that are most important for them to, to know, the things he most wants to impress on them before he, his time here on earth is done. And so last week we started showing, uh, walking through what Jesus did first. And the first thing he did is he actually took a towel, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And then he says, I've done this for you to set an example uh, that you should do this for others. And it, it's really fascinating. They're kind of in shock at this. They're a little bit embarrassed by it. Who forgot to, you know, set up the, the uh, servant to wash the feet of our rabbi? And yet he's done this intentionally to show them this is how you ascribe worth and value and dignity to others when you choose to serve. And so uh, that was last week. And then uh, today we're going to jump into what Jesus does next. And we're going to look at uh, what Jesus does during this next part of this sort of Last Supper really is an exclamation point at the end of a sentence that Jesus had been writing throughout his entire ministry. And so Jesus is actually going to, to do something that's pretty fascinating. And the Last Supper wasn't just an event that happened one time. What Jesus is doing was establishing something brand new. In fact, the Last Supper wasn't just about them eating together. It was about Jesus imparting something completely new to his disciples. You could put it like this. Jesus came to this place to replace what had been in place. Jesus came to this place to replace everything that had been in place. And Jesus came into this place with the goal of going, look, I'm not just adding to. It's not like this is going to be Law of Moses 2.0 or Judaism 2.0 or kind of the next chapter or the next iteration of what had already been. Jesus was saying, I'm doing something completely brand new. I'm going to establish something that has never been seen before. And so Jesus came to establish an entire new covenant, a new covenant. And that means a covenant is simply a word that means an agreement, a sacred agreement. And Jesus or God had established a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, but it was conditional and it was with one nation. And it was, if you will, then I will. And if you'll meet these conditions, then I will, I will be your God and you'll be my people. And here's the thing. And this was a conditional covenant, a sacred agreement that God had, not with the entire world, but with one nation, the nation of Israel. And Jesus was coming to establish a a whole new covenant, a new agreement, not with one nation, but with the entire world, all people for all time. And then Jesus gave a new command. This was something brand new, a new command that they had never heard before, not in this context, not in this way. And out of that, Jesus would launch an entirely new movement. And that's you and I. The church would be this whole new movement that would take this new covenant and this new command and would live it out in a new way that the world had never seen before. And throughout his ministry, Jesus would be dropping hints to what he was going to do. He would say things like, you've heard it said, but I say. And they'd go, well, that's kind of odd. And he'd say, you've heard that the law of Moses says this, but here's what I say. And he would set himself up in contrast to the law of Moses. And he was, he was indicating that the, the thing that you had known is now coming to an end and I'm doing something new. And they, they would kind of wonder at that. And the religious leaders would scratch their heads and go, yeah, I'm not sure you can really do that. The law of Moses is, is pretty set. I'm not, only God can do that. And Jesus was doing that intentionally to d- kind of point a finger towards who he was and what he had come to do. But the crowds loved it because they loved his teachings and they loved his miracles. And and then Jesus would say things like, uh, he claimed to be greater than the temple. And the religious leaders would go, you cannot say that. But the crowds would love it. And they'd go, well, if our whole life, our whole way of living is built around the temple and sacrifices and uh, we we go to the temple, this is how we live. So if there's no temple, I mean, what is it going to be? Jesus would say things like, the people who are the greatest in God's kingdom go to the back of the line. The people who are the greatest in God's kingdom are the ones who serve other people. The people who are the greatest in God's kingdom, they they don't uh, lord it over them, but rather they come under and they uplift others. And then Jesus did something in a religious system that valued cleanliness, where they talked a lot about being ceremonially clean, not physical cleanliness and and making sure that they followed the right cleaning rituals so that they could approach the temple. Jesus actually said that uh, it, it was often those who had the cleanest hearts who had the dirtiest hands, that it wasn't really your your physical body that made you clean or unclean, but rather what was in your heart. And he would touch unclean people. He would touch people who were unclean in their eyes. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, they would receive his righteousness and they would receive his healing. And Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover with his disciples. And the religious leaders heard that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and they sent out spies because they really wanted to kill him. So before we walk through what happens next in the Lord's Supper, let's back it up just a little bit, a few days before as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and check out what is taking place as it leads up to the Last Supper. It says this, uh, Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the High Council together. The High Council is a group of people who make uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious sects. They have somewhat different beliefs, but together they make up the religious council, and they're basically the the political structure and the religious structure for first century Judaism. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. That's a big problem. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And they're concerned because everybody's believing in Jesus. In John chapter 11, just before this, Jesus had risen someone from the dead and now everybody's astounded and they're in wonder at what Jesus is doing. And they're saying everybody's going to start believing in him. and. The Roman Empire is not going to stand for that. If, if he rises up big enough, then the Roman Empire is going to come in and they're going to kill our temple. They're going to kill our nation. And so we've got to instead put an end to Jesus. And so we read this a couple of verses later. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus's death. They had to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, there's a small problem with that. See, a few verses later we read this. The leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so that they could arrest him. Now, here's the problem with arresting Jesus it turns out Jesus was not hard to find, but he was very difficult to arrest. Because everywhere that Jesus went, there were crowds. Everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds gathered around him and they loved Jesus and they loved what he taught and they loved what he did and they loved the way that he modeled for them what it looked like to treat other people. And so it was very difficult not to find Jesus, but to arrest him without causing a riot. And so we find out that the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The anticipation is building, crowds are gathering. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to celebrate the Passover. And so people who were already in the city of Jerusalem, which swelled to a massive population during this festival, the Passover, they're gathering around Jesus. They're excited to see Jesus. And they actually thought the crowd assumed Jesus was coming to do something for the nation of Israel. But as it turns out, Jesus was actually coming to Jerusalem to do something for the entire world, to do something for you, to do something for me. And then something unusual happened. One of Jesus' disciples broke rank. Judas kind of saw this coming and said, I don't think Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom. I don't think he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. This is not going the way that I want it to. So I'm going to make a, an, an agreement with the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And so Judas breaks away. Uh, we don't know when, but he ran an errand. And, and he goes to the religious leaders and says, you want Jesus? I can get you Jesus. And I can get you Jesus when there aren't any crowds around. And so Luke records this for us, that he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. And in the end, their plan would succeed. Jesus would be arrested and Jesus would be killed. And their plan would succeed, but their objective would not. Because little did they know that was Jesus's plan the entire time. He had come to Jerusalem to give his life away. But before he would sacrifice his life for the world, there were two loose ends that Jesus wanted to clean up. And the first thing Jesus did was declare that he was establishing a brand new relationship between God and all of humanity, between God and all people. And so in the upper room, as they prepared to celebrate Passover, Jesus changed the meaning of Passover, Passover to a first century Jewish person meant this. Uh, there was a time when we were all, our nation was slaves in Egypt. This is over a thousand years before Jesus' time. And they were slaves in Egypt. And they escaped slavery in Egypt. And to celebrate that, what they did is they made bread that was unleavened, bread without yeast in it, that would uh, last while they were traveling because they were going to leave Egypt. And the, and the night before, they killed a lamb, and they sprinkled the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. And that night, that meant uh, that death would not come to that home. And anywhere that uh, there was blood on the doorpost, death would literally pass over. And that's why the name for this celebration became the celebration of Passover. And that's why they would have bread, and they would have wine, and they would, it would help them to remember that they had been set free from slavery in Egypt hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And Jesus comes along. Says so like, guys, I, I, I know you've done this since you were kids. I know for centuries our ancestors have celebrated Passover, and, and this is how you've always done it. But from now on, when you celebrate Passover, you're not going to remember Egypt, and you're not going to remember Moses. From now on, you're going to remember me. So he's changing Passover. And this bread that's always represented this one thing Now it's going to represent my body, which is going to be broken for you. And the wine that always represented the the blood that was sprinkled on the doorposts. Now I'm establishing a brand new covenant in my blood. And this signaled the end of God's conditional covenant with Israel. And it signaled the beginning of a new relational and unconditional agreement, an unconditional covenant that God is making with all people for all time. This is good news. And Jesus had been pointing to this all along. In fact, months before the Last Supper, we back up a few months. Before the Last Supper, his disciples were moving through villages and towns, and and Jesus was teaching and healing and, and dropping breadcrumbs that would ultimately point to what he would accomplish at the Last Supper. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always looking for ways to turn the crowds against him. They always wanted to arrest him. And so they would send in their operatives to ask questions of Jesus and try to trip him up on his words and try to get him to say something that they could arrest him for. And so several months earlier, we have this sort of dialogue that goes back and forth with uh, Jesus and his disciples. And uh, it goes like this. Uh, Jesus and the crowds, rather. And then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. And so they literally ask Jesus an IRS question. They come to him and they say, Jesus, should somebody who is God-fearing pay taxes? And Jesus' answer is so brilliant. Uh, he gives them this incredible answer, right? Give to, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And it's just such a brilliant statement. And it he, he doesn't say anything negative against the emperor, against the king, and yet it honors God. And it's just uh, They're dumbfounded. The, the person that comes to ask the question kind of scurries away back to their handlers. The Pharisees are like, man, he answered that so good. The crowds are loving it. They always love when Jesus embarrasses the religious elite. And so the Sadducees, are up next. And they're another sort of sect of religious leaders. And the Sadducees don't believe in the afterlife. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> wah, wah. And so they come to Jesus with a ridiculous hypothesis. They go, they say this teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. So this is a part of the law of Moses. If, uh, if a brother, uh, his wife, uh, if he dies, then he should marry her. They should have kids. And that way he carries on the name and the family name won't be lost forever. Suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one uh, married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died. And the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. And last of all, the woman also died. Do tell us whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. And the crowd's going, that's a really good question. Wow, we never thought of that. And Jesus knows that the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. They're simply asking a question. And Jesus, uh, Jesus is thinking it through, and he gives them this brilliant answer. He says, do you guys not read the scriptures? And they go, no, well, that's all we do is read the scriptures. And Jesus He goes, well, he goes back to Abraham. He goes past the law of Moses. He gives them context. He digs into some of the verbiage and he gives them this brilliant answer and they can't figure it out. Like, how is he so smart? And they go scurrying back to their handlers. And now the Pharisees go, okay, we're up next. And the crowd loves it. They love when Jesus embarrassed the religious leaders. And so then you get the next section. When the crowds heard him, they were astounded at his teaching. The crowds loved Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply... They met together to question him again. So Pharisees tried it first. Jesus answered them. Okay, they go back. Next, the Sadducees are up. Jesus answers them. They go back. Now the Pharisees have reloaded. They're ready to try it again. This time, one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And which, at which point, you know, the, the lawyer, the, the religious leader is about to say something else and Jesus goes, I'm not done. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now this is something brand new. Jesus has actually taken two different parts of the law of Moses. You find Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind in one part of the law of Moses, and you find love your neighbor as yourself in another part of the law of Moses. This is the first time that we know of, at least in recorded history, that anybody took the two and put them together. And Jesus, this is signaling a major, major shift. A shift that Jesus had been signaling all along. That when it comes to religion, no longer is it just about the vertical, it's about the horizontal. That these two things go hand in hand. Jesus says the second is like it, not like it just in order, but like it in its equal in importance. It's equal in priority. That religion is shifting from a vertical orientation to a horizontal orientation. In the religious world in which Jesus lived, and perhaps in the religious environment that you grew up in. Maybe you came from a religious background that kind of lived this way, or maybe you grew up in a religious background, or maybe you were a part of a church that kind of operated this way. But particularly in the religious world where Jesus lived, and often in churches today, a person could love God and treat people poorly. Because it was all about the vertical. A person could claim to be good with God and mistreat other people. And when they were confronted on how they would treat people, they'd go, oh no, me and God are good. I mean, I worship God. I, I praise him. I sing songs to his holy name. I've asked him to forgive my sins. I mean, I, I go to church. I have morals. And when confronted on it, they'd say, no, me and God are good because everything is good this way. And you could go, yeah, but look at, look at how you treat your spouse. I mean, listen to how you respond to your kids. I mean, do, do you see how you treat your coworkers and your neighbors and the people around you? Yeah, but me and God are good. We're totally good because, you know. And that was the religion of the first century. And that was pretty much the religion of every century leading up to Jesus. And Jesus was saying, that's about to change. In fact, Jesus would say, your Bible, when he's talking to first century Jewish people, they didn't have the New Testament that we have today, that came later. And so he's looking at them he's going look all of the demands of the law and the prophets that's what you would call the hebrew scriptures that was the only bible they had was the law of moses and the writings of the prophets and jesus would say everything everything in the law and the prophets is built on based on and rooted in these two commands love god love your neighbor If you ever get confused, Jesus would say, about what you're reading in the Law and the Prophets, and you're not sure how to apply it, you're not sure how to contextualize it, you're not sure how to interpret it, this is the lens through which you are to use. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. Everything else, everything else is history and commentary on that idea. In other words, Jesus would say this, love for God is authenticated by a love for others. The way that I show that I love God, the way that that I, I, I can say that me and God are good, the way the vertical works is when everything is good horizontally. And in this moment, Jesus reduces all 613 laws of Moses to two. Love God, love your neighbor. And he wasn't done. The problem for people in the first century was that a neighbor had a very specific context. If you were a Jewish person, your neighbor meant anybody else who was a Jewish person. And so Jesus, at one point in time, someone asked him, and again, trying to find a loophole and trying to find some wiggle room for this, they said, all right, well, who exactly is my neighbor? And in response to that, Jesus tells this brilliant story. It's come to be known as the story of the Good Samaritan about a guy who wasn't Jewish, who helped someone who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead. In fact, it was somebody that Jewish people despised, the Samaritans, and the Samaritan guy helped the person who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead, paid for his stay, nursed him back to health. Jesus changed the definition of neighbor. And in telling this story, he redefines neighbor not as another Jewish person, not as someone that you like, and not as somebody who's like you. Jesus said, no, a neighbor is somebody who has a need, somebody that you come into contact with, and they have a need, and you can meet it. That's your neighbor. That's brand new. And so really, you could say this, love for God is authenticated by love for others, Who may not like me and may be nothing like me. Love for God is authenticated. My love for God is authenticated. It's demonstrated by a love for others who might not like you and might be nothing like you. And unbeknownst to his audience and unbeknownst to us, these are just signs. These are just breadcrumbs that are pointing toward what Jesus will ultimately do at the new, at at the Last Supper. A very specific direction, hinting at the way that we will live in the new covenant, in the new relationship. And Jesus chooses Passover as his official unveiling, the official reveal. So they just finished the meal. We talked about this last week. And, and Jesus had redefined what the covenant is. It's no longer about Passover. And now it's about remembering me. And he'd washed their feet. This is so unreal to them. They're kind of embarrassed and kind of taken off guard. And then Judas gets up and leaves. Mysteriously, nobody knows where he's going. John actually writes that we, we assumed he had gone to pay for the Passover meal. And Jesus, having replaced the covenant established by Moses, establishing a new covenant in his blood, he then begins to replace the law of Moses by giving them a brand new command. And it wasn't 613 laws of Moses, and it wasn't even the two. What happens next is what would change the world. In fact, this is the command on which followers of Jesus are to live their life. It is the command that Jesus had been pointing to throughout his entire ministry. And so Jesus looks at his disciples, John 13, he says this. So now I'm giving you a new commandment in which they had, if they had been thinking clearly, they would have been like, "Uh, hold on, Jesus, you're not allowed to do that. Only God can give commandments. And God already gave 10 of them, pretty big deal, to Moses. Long time ago, and then we got those, and then the 613 laws were established to, to help interpret those. And so we already got, you can't make a new command. It was one thing when you took this one part of the law of Moses and this other part and you kind of put them together. I mean, that was one thing, it was creative and all, but you can't just give new commands. Only God can do that. So they're kind of sitting there like, a yeah, new commandment. What could this be? And then Jesus says, Here it is love each other. And they go, That's not new. Jesus, what do you, love each other. We've heard that one before. Jesus would say, I'm not done. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And then in this moment, Jesus could have, and maybe he did and no one recorded it, Jesus could have looked around the room and said, as I have loved you, Matthew, do you remember, do you remember when we met? Yeah. What were you doing? Well, I was a tax collector. And Peter would go, I remember that. I didn't really want to hang out with that guy. And, and Jesus would go, do you remember what I asked you to do? Do, do, do you remember the invitation? Matthew would say, yeah, you, you invited me to follow you, to be one of your friends and disciples. Matthew, do you remember when I came to your house after that? And we had a party with all of your friends. Do you remember that? Matthew would say, yeah. Do, do you remember how the religious leaders, they actually stayed on the cul-de-sac because they didn't even want to set foot in your yard because that would make them unclean? But, but I came into your house and I hung out with all your friends, all your friends who were sinners and tax collectors. And it, my reputation took a huge hit, but I didn't care. And I've never brought that up. But Matthew, do you remember that? Matthew would say, yeah. And Jesus would say, as I have loved you, you're to love everybody else. I want you to take the same grace and the same love that I've extended to you. And I want you to extend that to every single person that you come into contact with for the rest of your life. Hey, Nathaniel. Yeah. Hey, do you remember when we met Nathaniel? Yeah, I remember. Do you remember how you basically dissed my hometown? You're like, nothing good can come from Nazareth. Yeah, I remember. And what did I do? Well, you asked me to follow you. You invited me to be your friend and disciple. Jesus would say, "And, and I showed such grace to you. And I've never once brought that up, but I want you to know the same grace that I extended to you, I want you to extend that same grace and that same love to every single person that you come into contact with for the rest of your life. And not because they deserve it. And not because of who they are, and not because of what they've done for you. I want you to do it because of what I've done for you. This is absolutely amazing. Jesus didn't come to add something. Uh, Jesus didn't come to to replace, uh, to to simply, uh, you know, add something to it. Jesus came to replace what was in place. And if the church gets this right, everything changes. Everything changes. See, this wasn't new content, it was just a brand new context. The command to love others wasn't a brand new command. It was the lens through which we're to love others. No longer is it based on what they've done for me. That's, Jesus would say, that's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule, right? Jesus goes, no, no, no. We're going above that. And then, then he took it and said, no, I want you to love others like you love yourself. I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so he took it a, a step up. And now he's going, no, no, no. This is the context. You are to love others the way that I have loved you. Regardless of how they've treated you, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their choices, regardless of what they've done to you, said about you, they are not the measure of how you treat them. The measure for how you love others is how I have loved you. It's not a new command. It's a brand new context. And then Jesus would say, man, this is just a Passover meal. He could have said, you think I've loved you up to this point, just give it a few days. Guys, in two days, in three days, in four days, I'm about to take this to a whole new level. And I want you to show love to others the way that you are about to see me demonstrate love for you. And then Jesus would say this, lean in close, guys. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Do you know how the rest of the world is gonna know what you're all about? It's how you treat each other. It's how you treat people who are nothing like you. It's how you treat people who don't even like you. How you treat them is going to determine what people think about you and about this movement that is starting. And they're going to know those are Jesus people. Those are Jesus disciples. Those are, that's a Jesus kind of way of living. That's a Jesus kind of way of thinking. Because the way they treat others isn't based on how other people have treated them. It's not based on what other people deserve. It's like they figured out the way Jesus treated them, and they just treat other people the same way Jesus has treated them, even when those people don't like them and even when those people are nothing like them. That's what changes the world. Not when you love God, not when you love me, Jesus, and I'm I'm leaving this place. Not when you love God because nobody sees that. That's vertical. It's the horizontal that will make a difference. Your love for me, your love for God will be demonstrated by how well you love each other and by how well you love people who are difficult to love. So it's not 613 laws. Compared to the 613 laws of Moses, here's what you could say. Loving like Jesus is less complicated, but far more demanding. It is less complicated. It's one command, but it is far more demanding. And here's why. You give me a big list of rules, I can find a loophole. In fact, you give me, the more rules that you give me, the more space there is, the more potential for me to find some wiggle room and some workarounds and some loopholes. And kids are expert at this, right? Every kid is brilliant at creating loopholes. Well, mom, I did what you said. I mean, you didn't exactly say that. Well, dad, you didn't exactly say that. I mean, I followed the letter of the law. And every time we have a conversation, we better go through the fine print this is, what, this is why I get questions like this all the time as a, as a pastor and other pastors and leaders sometimes get this. Hey, do you think such and such is a sin? And he, here's the question. There's always a question behind that question. If we were to put it into words, it would go something like this. I'd really like to do X, Y, Z, but I don't want God to be mad at me. I'd really like to do, I'd really like to live my life this way, but also I don't want to fall out of favor with God. So here's the question. Is there anything wrong with dot, dot, dot? Like, what's the sweet spot? Is it technically a sin if, do you think such and such is a sin? How much can I get away with before, you know, God starts messing up with my kids or makes me lose my job or I don't get good parking spots at the mall? How close can I get to sin without actually sinning? That's, that's loophole thinking, right? It's a vertical-oriented thinking. And the Pharisees and religious leaders were professional loophole creators. They were great at this they had figured out a way to interpret the law and the prophets to fit their lifestyle and to benefit them. And that's what a vertical-only faith does for you. And there was so much hypocrisy that it drove people away from the God they were created to worship. Vertical-only faith, vertical-only, where it goes, okay, I got morals and me and God are good, so it doesn't matter how I treat other people. The horizontal doesn't matter. It's vertical-only. It will always be a me-centered faith because at the center of that thinking, the center of that ideology, is this, what are the things that I need to believe or what are the things that uh, the ways I need to behave? What boxes do I need to check to make sure that me and God are good? Which means that the center of that is me. It's a me-centered ideology. And this approach to faith always gravitates to rules and rituals because as long as I keep the letter of the law, it doesn't matter if I violate the spirit behind it in which it was given. And that leads to all kinds of loopholes. Because then as long as I'm good with God, it doesn't matter how I treat other people. That's why for some of you, you've stayed away from church for so long. That's why some of you watching online, you're not sure you want to step foot in this place and, and you're doing cult watch right now trying to figure out what kind of weirdos are going go to that place. Because somewhere along the way, you came across somebody who wore the, the, the label of Christian and they didn't technically sin, They didn't break a rule, they just weren't kind. They just didn't love very well. And you just determined like, if that's what that means, I don't really want any part of that. And so you've stiff-armed God and you've stiff-armed Jesus because you've stiff-armed some of his followers who had a vertical-only orientation. They weren't very good at doing this. And in the process, you stiff-armed God. And nobody broke a rule. They just found a loophole. They just weren't kind. They just weren't loving. They didn't sin technically. They kept the letter of the law. They just don't love others well. Do you know why, for followers of Jesus, why you should tell the truth? Well, because it's in the Bible and God will be mad at me if I don't. Nope. Has nothing to do with the fact that it's in the Bible. Vertical faith says, don't lie because the Bible says so. The new covenant, horizontal love says, I'm not going to lie because it hurts the person I'm lying to. Totally different lens. The Jesus model says you don't lie because when you do, you're covering yourself at someone else's expense. You're saying to the person, you're not worthy of the truth. Whatever is best for you is secondary to what is best for me. So that's why you don't lie. The reason followers of Jesus shouldn't lie has nothing to do with, well, because it's in the Bible. Has nothing to do with that. The reason it's in the Bible is because God is so deeply loves the people that you and I are tempted to lie to. And so vertical thinking says, I'm going to tell the truth, so that way God will love me. The Jesus model says, no, I'm going to tell the truth because God has already loved me and he wants me to love others the way that he has loved me. And he wouldn't lie to me. He wouldn't put himself ahead of me, so I'm not going to put myself ahead of others. Totally different lens. It's not a new command, just a new context. How about this? Uh, uh, Do you know why we're to be generous? Because it's in the Bible, and God says you should be generous. And there's something about a curse. I don't know. No, that's not why. Let's be clear. If you live in the United States of America in 2023, you're already blessed. It's just a fact. The reason followers of Jesus should be generous is because when you're generous, it helps the person you're generous to. The vertical only thinking says, I'm going to be generous so that God will bless me. The Jesus horizontal new covenant love says, I'm going to be generous because God has already blessed me. And I'm going to do for others what Jesus has done for me. See, do you know why you should serve others? Well, the Bible says so, and there's something about hiding your talents and, you know, God's going to get mad if I don't use them. Nope. The reason you should serve others is because when you serve others, it helps others experience the tangible love of Jesus. Vertical only, I should serve God because then, you know, that makes God happy. New, new covenant, Jesus love says, no, I serve others because it helps them experience God's love. That's why we're doing, hey, say yes. That's why I got my obnoxious say yes shirt on for the second week in a row. Because we've got a bunch of spots out there where you can sign up for a serving team. Why? Because, uh, because God's going to be mad at you if you don't serve. Nope. It's because when you serve, you get to show people in our community what it looks like. You get to present them with a tangible way to say, hey, uh, this is what Jesus did for me, so this is what I'm going to do for you. Do you know why you shouldn't gossip or talk poorly about someone? Well, it's in the Bible. God says you shouldn't gossip or he's going to be mad at you. Nope. See, that's vertical thinking. The reason that you don't gossip is not you're afraid for yourself of what God's going to do to you. That's, that's all vertical. That's centered on me. The reason I don't gossip is because when I gossip, it hurts somebody else created in God's image, who he loves. And Jesus would never do that to me, so I'm not going to do that to someone else. The reason you don't gossip is because it undermines that person's integrity in the minds of other people. The reason you don't gossip is because it it causes you to elevate yourself at somebody else's expense. Jesus wouldn't do that. If there was never a word in the Bible about gossip, you still shouldn't do it, because the guiding ethic for followers of Jesus is not, is it in the Bible, is it in the Bible, is it in the Bible? It's love as Jesus has loved you. And gossip hurts someone else, so you shouldn't do it whether there's a verse for it or not. only Vertical only. Don't gossip because God will be mad at me. New covenant, Jesus love. Don't gossip because it hurts someone God loves. It hurts someone that God loves. Do you know why you shouldn't pressure your boyfriend or girlfriend sexually? Do you know why there's a sexual ethic for followers of Jesus? Well, the Bible says God will be mad at me if I do that. And, you know, it's, I'll face consequences. as a potential to ruin my life. Again, that's vertical thinking. That's all about you. No. The reason you don't pressure another person sexually is because when you pressure someone to do something they don't want to do, you create a regret in them. And if you love them and put them first, you don't want to do something that causes a regret for them. And so this, this vertical thinking says, okay, don't pressure someone sexually because it has the potential to harm me and, and cause a regret for me. But the new covenant, Jesus' love, says, no, I'm not going to pressure someone sexually because it, has, because it has the potential to harm them and to create a regret for them. And see, God doesn't give a verse for every example in your life. He just gives one guiding command that determines all of our behavior. This, this simple question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? In every situation, in every season, in every relationship, what if we ask that question? What does love require of me? Not based on what they deserve, not based on what they've done, not based on how they've treated me, and I'm going to give them the reciprocal, but God, based on what you have done for me, based on the way you have treated me, based on the way you have loved me, how should I love others? What does love require of me? In every command in the New Testament, what we have as the New Testament that came after Jesus, every single command in the New Testament is simply an application of Jesus' one command, to love as I have loved you. When you read the letters that Paul writes, he uses this phrase, just as, over and over and over again. Paul says, you are to forgive. Well, why, Paul? Just as Christ forgave you. Hey, you're to submit to one another in marriage. Well, why? Do they deserve that? No, out of your reverence for Christ. Because of what Jesus has modeled, you are to do the same. Hey, you are to be patient and kind, just as Jesus was with you. Why? Because love is patient and love is kind, Paul would say. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You'll notice over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, it is not filled with a bunch of rules. It is one command with dozens and dozens and dozens of applications for how to live that out. The New Testament commands are examples. How do I demonstrate my love for God by loving others? That's all it is. And that's why God doesn't, look, doesn't like it when we look for theological loopholes. Well, does it really say that in the Bible? And, you know, show me a verse. And I don't, I'm not really sure you can interpret it that way. God says, Really? I wasn't trying to cover everything. I was just giving you some examples of what it looks like to love others as I have loved you. What does love require of me? What if in every situation, in every relationship, in every season, what if we asked that question and then we lived whatever we thought was the answer to that question without looking for loopholes, without looking for wiggle room, without looking for a workaround, and without asking, how does this affect me? Could you imagine how that would change your marriage? how that would change your relationship with your kids, how it might change your job, your workplace, or or our community. And the first century followers of Jesus, they got this right. And they made a lot of mistakes, just like we will. But they got this right. And somehow they survived, sandwiched between the temple that wanted to kill them and the Roman Empire that wanted to kill them. And somehow this group of Jesus followers who had no assets and no land and no position and no power and no military, they thrived and thrived and thrived because they got this right. And we're sitting here today because they got this right. And when the church gets this right, the community becomes better it, it's just the community is glad there's another church in town. People go, man, I, I don't know what I think about God. I don't know about all that Jesus stuff, but those are the finest, nicest, kindest, most loving, most honest people I've ever come into contact with. I want my kid to marry one of those Christian people because I know they'll treat him good. I, I, I don't know where I stand with all this Jesus stuff, but I'll do business with one of those people because they're always honest and they're always kind and they always show patience. It's just, I don't know what it is about them, the way that they live, the way that they treat people. Like, I don't know if if I believe what they believe, but I want to be friends with them. I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I I went to that church and it was just like, man, it it didn't feel like I was on the outside looking in. I don't know if I believe everything they believe, but I want to go back again. I want to be around those people. There's something about that group of people and the way that they love. that's just compelling. That's what changes the world. And when a church gets this right, the community is a better place. We seem to follow this one idea, as I have loved you, you are to love others. And when we get that right, the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And at one point in time, God asked this question, what does love require of me? And in response to that question, he sent Jesus into the world. And then Jesus asked the question, what does love require of me? And In response to that question, Jesus laid down his life He allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitnesses, he rose from the dead. And that means death is not the end. There is more to this life than this life. And you and I have been invited to be a part of God's family. And if you have never said yes to that, you can say yes right where you sit, watching online here in the room. Just agree with this prayer as we close God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you, and I'm so glad that you never walk away from me. And I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how. And God, I pray for every one of us, I pray that you would help us to not just get so focused on the vertical that we miss what it means to live horizontal. God, May we love as you have loved us. May we ask the question, what does love require of me in every season, in every situation, in every relationship? And then may we respond in kind. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.